All right, it's good to be able to worship this morning together. And that monitor is working. Great job, Petrus. First time I can flat hear myself right here. So that's good. April as a month is coming to a close. So hopefully your New Year's resolutions are one third of the way fulfilled at this point. And if not, then you still have several more months to put those into action. And once more, we've survived school holidays, which is very encouraging for all the parents as the kids go back to school pretty soon. Also, I want to remind you of people that have recently moved here so that we can make sure they feel connected and a part of the fellowship. So we have Cornelius and his wife recently from South Africa. If you could stand up again just to make sure we... A couple weeks ago, they're still, still settling. And Tony and Angelique from Bangalore are... Where are you? Oh, there, there's Tony. And then Angelique's somewhere. Fantastic. So make sure you, you get to meet them so that they can spread the word about Auckland to their friends so they can also move here at some point as well. We have quite a few people continuing to move in, which is very encouraging. And also a, a hello to Tony Beeland, who's here visiting with his father's here somewhere as well. So good to have you here. So we're back in the book of 1 Corinthians. So if you have a Bible, turn to chapter 12. That's what we're going to be this morning. And we're going to talk about being spiritual. All right. So you may have heard this term in today's society about being spiritual. It's kind of a buzzword today. In fact, I I use it quite a bit myself when I reach out to people. I ask them, are you a spiritual guy? And start a spiritual conversation. And, And so I don't know what you think being spiritual means, but a lot of people may connect it to doing yoga. (laughs) And how long you can hold that pose is equivalent to how spiritual you are. And so if you want to know how spiritual you are, see how long you can hold that pose. Yoga is a big deal. It's like $10 billion industry, by the way. And so people people connect somehow. And I'm not saying yoga is bad, okay? Yoga is good. But just because you do yoga, that doesn't mean you're spiritual. All right. But then there's also the Dalai Lama who says something like this. He was quoted saying, while the West was busy exploring outer space, the East was busy exploring inner space. It was, oh, oh, the Dalai Lama. Look at that. You know, and and what does that mean? It's like I'm spiritual because I'm reflecting inside. It's all about me. I'm internalizing all of that. And while that's good and healthy, it's limited. But just because you reflect and explore inner space doesn't mean you're spiritual. All right. But there are these ideas floating out there about what it means to be spiritual. And thankfully, the Bible clarifies it for us and helps us understand what it means to be spiritual. And that's that's a big theme from First Corinthians 12 this morning. And uh, it's a buzzword. And, and, and so whatever you think it means, if it's getting in touch with some being or what whatever you might have in your mind this morning, we'll look at what First Corinthians 12 says and clarify at least two things about being spiritual this morning. So let's pray together, then read 1 Corinthians 12. Father, we're grateful to come before you as we are broken and in need of mending, and we're grateful that you heal us through the cross. Be with me as I speak your words. Help me to be humble towards your word and help all of us to to have a deep humility that we're experiencing and and interacting with something divine, that it's not just words on a page or a book on a shelf or um, a meeting that we attend on a Sunday morning, but it's it's something supernatural that's taking place when when we read your word and we allow it to open our minds and change our lives and and in turn, change this city and this country. Father, we pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. First Corinthians chapter 12, we're going to start in verse 1 and read the chapter. And then talk about two things that being spiritual is about. 
So in verse 1, now about the gifts of the Spirit, brothers and sisters, I do not want you to be uninformed. You know that when you were pagans, somehow or other, you were influenced and led astray to mute idols. Therefore, I want you to know that no one who is speaking by the Spirit of God says, Jesus be cursed. And no one can say, Jesus is Lord, except by the Holy Spirit. Verse 4, there are different kinds of gifts, but the same Spirit distributes them. There are different kinds of service, but the same Lord. There are different kinds of workings, but in all of them, and in everyone, it is the same God at work. So you see the Trinitarian theme there, Spirit, Lord, and God, all in verse 4, 5, and 6. And verse 7, now to each one, the manifestation of the Spirit is given for the common good. And that idea of common good turns up a lot in Corinth because they're not focused on the common good. They're focused on the good for the individual. So Christianity is more about what's best for everyone. In verse 8 to 1, there is given through the Spirit a message of wisdom. To another, a message of knowledge by the means of the same Spirit. To another, faith by the same Spirit. To another, gifts of healing by that one Spirit. To another, miraculous powers. To another, prophecy. To another, distinguishing between spirits. To another, speaking in different kinds of tongues. And to still another, the interpretation of tongues. All these are the work of the one and the same Spirit. And He distributes them to each one just as He determines. In verse 12, just as a body, though one, has many parts, but all its many parts parts form one body, so it is with Christ. For we were all baptized by one Spirit as to form one body, whether Jews or Gentiles, Kiwi, South African, slave or free, and we were all given the one Spirit to drink. Even so, the body is not made up of one part, but of many. And that all kind of sounded obvious. And then he has some speeches from some different body parts in verse 15. Now, if the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body. That would not for that reason stop being part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body. It would not for that reason stop being part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? If the whole body were an ear, where would the sense of smell be? But in fact, God has placed the parts in the body, every one of them, just as He wanted them to be. If they were all one part, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts but one body. And and still He's talking about the human body, but you see the, the easy connection between the church body. In verse 21, the eye cannot say to the hand. So here you have these absurd speeches from different body parts. The eye cannot say to the hand, I don't need you. And the head cannot say to the feet, I don't need you. On the contrary, those parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And the parts that we think are less honorable, we treat with special honor. And the parts that are unpresentable are treated with special modesty. Again, this is, he's talking about the human body. So stuff that you clothe, you treat with special modesty so that nobody see, no one sees, but everybody sees your face. And so he's talking about, in verse 24, our presentable parts need no special treatment. But God has put the body together, giving great honor, greater honor to the parts that lacked it, so that there should be no division in the body. But that its parts should have equal concern for each other. 
If one part suffers, every part suffers with it. If one part is honored, then every part rejoices with it. Now, he'll pull this together and conclude, you are the body of Christ. And each one of you is a part of it. And God has placed in the church, first of all, apostles, second, prophets, third, teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, Gifts of healing, of helping, of guidance, and of different kinds of tongues. Are all apostles? Are all prophets? Are all teachers? Do all work miracles? Do all have the gifts of healing? Do all speak in tongues? Do all interpret? The obvious answer is no. Now eagerly desire the greater gifts. And the next week we'll talk about chapter 13 and love. So 1 Corinthians 12 is is an often known passage because it talks about the human body and its relation to the church body. But what's going on here mainly is the church in Corinth has an idea they're spiritual. And you get that sense from the very beginning when Paul in chapter 1 says, I see you are enriched and gifted in every way. You think you're wise. You think you have knowledge. And so they were very obsessed with being spiritual, being wise, and being knowledgeable. And Paul is going to correct that view starting in chapter 12 all the way to chapter 14. And he's going to say, well, let me, let me redefine genuine spirituality for you. You think you're spiritual, you think you're wise, but let me, let me tell you what God thinks real spirituality is. And you see his emphasis on God through chapter 12, don't you? It all comes from Jesus, it all comes from the Lord, it all comes from God. So in verses 4 through 6, there's a big emphasis on God, right? And then you'll see in verse 11, who distributes the gifts? The Spirit. And He distributes them as He sees fit. Verse 18, who puts the body parts together? God. So again, there's an emphasis on God. Verse 24, God does this so that everybody is together and there's no division. So true spirituality is, is really an emphasis on God and not yourself, first of all. And, but then He'll start to help them understand two things that we'll talk about this morning. Point number one is that a true spiritual person places truth... Over experience. Truth over experience. And secondly, a true spiritual person knows there's unity in diversity. Let's talk about that first one, if we could. Truth over experience. A lot lot of people know about the body and and how it's related to the church. But verses 1 through 3 are a bit more complicated to see how it all ties together. And often they're overlooked and skipped over. But I want to camp there for just a minute and talk about that. First of all, in verse 1, it says, now about the gifts of the Spirit. You see that, right? And maybe you have a footnote. Maybe you don't. But in, in, in verse 1, gifts of the Spirit is an NIV translation. In the original language, it doesn't say gifts of the Spirit. It just says, I want to talk to you about spiritual things. And then later on in the chapter, he does start to address spiritual gifts, charismatic gifts, and things like that. But verse 1 is, is where you get the idea, I want you to understand spiritual things. Alright, spirituality, what it really means to be spiritual. And so it it pops up in chapter 1, verse 1, or that's chapter 12, verse 1. Now about the gifts of the Spirit. That's one word in the original language, and it also appears in chapter 2, verse 15. 
The person with the Spirit. That's the same word. So it's not, it's not like he's saying these are gifts at this point. The person with the Spirit makes judgments about all things. The spiritual person makes judgments about all things. Chapter 3, verse 1. Brothers and sisters, I could not address you as people who live by the Spirit. Exact same word as people who are spiritual, but as people who are still worldly. So here he's, he's really saying, I want to talk to you about what it means to be spiritual. Okay? That's what that means in verse 1. But then verse 2, he says, you know that when you were pagans, somehow or other you were influenced and led astray to mute idols. What does all that mean? And how does this even tie in to chapter 12 at all? And what he's essentially saying is, remember when you were pagans and you had these experiences in pagan temples and your conclusion was that was spiritual, that was true spirituality, but then you realized It was mute, dumb idols. You're probably not the best judge based on your past about what genuine spirituality is. Remember when you were pagan. And he says, I don't want you to be uninformed, literally ignorant. I I don't want you to be ignorant. You may think you know what true spirituality is, but before you came to Christ, you thought spirituality was going to the temple and listening to idols. Does that make sense so far? So he's, he's, he's trying to correct and, and help them understand. And when they would go to these pagan temples in worship, which are in Corinth, they would have these kind of ecstatic, inspired speeches or utterances that, that were intelligible. Unintelligible, rather. And so they'd go in there and they'd think, man, let's, this is a spiritual experience. Listen to this. It's ecstatic. It's emotional. There's utterances. This is a spiritual experience. And sometimes in those, in those worship sessions, they would say things like, Jesus be cursed in, in, the, in the pagan temples. And he's telling them, look, when, when you went to those things and you heard these fanatics and these things, that was your version of spirituality. So now when you're in Corinth and in the church and you're coming to church and you're focused on speaking in tongues and you're thinking, listen to us speak in tongues and you're thinking that's an experience that equals spirituality, that's not so. Because the same thing happens in pagan temples. And you thought that was spiritual. So just don't simply come together and be solely focused on speaking in tongues. Don't come to church looking for experience. And equate that with being spiritual. That's his point so far. And then in verse 4, verse 3, he says, I want you to know that no one who is speaking by the Spirit of God says, Jesus be cursed. And no one can say, Jesus is Lord, except by the Holy Spirit. Well, if you think about that, like, anybody can say, Jesus is Lord, right? I mean, in Matthew, it says, don't come to me and say, Lord, Lord, and don't do what I say. So, it seems like anybody can say that. So, what's he saying? Well, when you said, Jesus is Lord, in this context... That meant you pledged absolute allegiance to Jesus as your Lord. And that meant your life modeled after Jesus. So you can't do that unless you're allowed to do that by the Spirit. And so he's saying, you know, Jesus, if if you're really concerned about genuine spirituality, Jesus must be your Lord and you must follow him. It's not about experience. And like Corinth, I think today's society overemphasizes experience. It's a big deal. What do people go to church for normally? An experience. 
That's kind of what, what I'm looking for something to make me feel good. I'm looking for some good music. I'm looking for something that I can feel like I can walk out of there and the spirit was really present. Now, if it is, that's awesome if you get that. But that doesn't mean it's genuine or true. Does that make sense? One of the ways this is illustrated is in 2004, this is an image of the Passion of Christ. Remember that movie by Mel Gibson? How many of you have seen that movie? It's, it's an awesome movie. And there's a sequel coming out soon, actually. It's called The Resurrection. So it's, uh, look, look for that. It might, might be an interesting movie. But when it, when it started to hit the theaters, all the, the mainstream Christianity got really hype about this. And, they, and it was quoted as being the best outreach opportunity in 2,000 years. <laughs> like, that's hyperbolic if you've ever heard a statement one. Like, this movie is the best opportunity to reach out to people in 2,000 years. Really? What about, like, right after the resurrection? <laughs> Compared to that. But, but, like, advertisements or advertisements were spent, like, heaps of money was spent to promote this movie. And it made, it's like the eighth grossing movie of all time. It's a top grossing movie in all time. And so, and, and some churches rented out entire theaters and, and they promoted it. And some churches even and had counselors in place so that after they could have this experience, people could talk to the counselors about what they were feeling based on the movie. And all that's really good and healthy. And some churches even saw an increase in attendance for the next week or so, which is all really good and healthy. But when they surveyed the long-term impact, it was flat out minimal. Minimal. What was it? It was just an experience. They got fired up, they got emotional, they saw the movie, they got stirred, and by the time they walked out of the theater and stopped talking to the counselors, they completely forgot what they were going to do. And so there's a research company, Barna, they studied it and they said less than one half a percent of people who saw the movie say it motivated them to be more active in sharing their faith in the long term. But everybody was so fired up about it, and it was a big experience, but not genuine impact. Think about when Jesus was walking around on the earth, he fed at least 5,000 people. That's just the men. And the next minute he feeds 4,000 people. That's just the men. So he fed at least 9,000 men, probably close to 15, 20,000 people. And at the end of his ministry, 120 people are following him. Experience doesn't mean truth. Just because you experience something doesn't mean you're genuinely following Jesus. The better question is, how does that experience impact your long-term life? What do you like next year and the year after and five years later? That's the better question. The Bible warns us about this stuff. In Colossians 2, Paul says, Don't let anyone who delights in false humility and the worship of angels disqualify you. And here's where he gets specific. Such a person goes into great detail about what they have seen. And they are puffed up with idle notions by their unspiritual mind. They have lost connection with the head from the whole body. And you've probably been like this at some point. If you haven't, you've probably heard someone. But someone who has these great spiritual experiences and, and they're puffed up about what they've seen and what they heard and what they know and what they're enlightened about. And Paul says, watch out for those people. Because they elevate experience over truth. This is the society we live in. 
People, they elevate experience over truth. They equate that with, if I have a good church experience, that's awesome. But that doesn't mean it's spiritual. And they can be helpful and they can be real, but what is clear is you can never elevate them over truth of Scripture. And that, unfortunately, that while the charismatic movement has, has a lot of great qualities, one of the negative qualities is they do elevate experience over truth. If you go to church and have a spiritual time, and you walk out of there feeling great, but you don't know anything more about the Bible, that's not really the point. And so I think that we have to understand, this is the, this is the culture that we live in. Churches fine-tune their services for an experience. And, and part of that's good, and, and I think we could grow in, in our promoting an experience that, so people connect with God. All right? I'm not saying it's bad, but I'm saying it's bad to elevate it over the truth of the Bible. And think you're walking away with a spiritual experience. Here's what Jesus says. To be a true spiritual person in John 8. If you hold to my teaching, you're really my disciples. Then you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. If you have an experience but you're not holding on to the truth, you're not really living out discipleship. But if you're clinging to these teachings from Jesus, that's when you'll find truth. And, and, and part of this is really helping people in religious society open their minds to this idea. Because you have friends and you have family and, and you'll run into people who have this kind of mindset. And it's important for us to patiently and lovingly help them see you cannot elevate experience over truth. Jesus says this in John 14 as well. But the advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I have said to you. The reason I show you this passage is a lot of people say, oh, the Holy Spirit is leading me this way or leading me that way or telling me this or telling me that. But they can't find it in the Bible. And Jesus says, the Holy Spirit will remind you of what I said. That's in the Bible. So if you have a Holy Spirit revelation, it's leading you to some direction that you can't support in the Bible. That's an experience. That's not genuine spirituality. Jesus said, the Spirit is always going to point you back to truth. Does that make sense? So we have to understand, this is the culture that we live in. And I'm all for conferences that are life-changing. I'm all for events that open your... You know, I'm all for all this kind of stuff. But the point is, we can't make that... Equal truth. Amen? Amen? Secondly, a true spiritual person understands that there's unity in diversity. Amen. And it's, it's funny here because Corinth seems, you know, although the passage is talking about spiritual gifts and it kind of lists several of them, that's not his main point. And some people get so caught up in what's my spiritual gift. And I, I do believe the Bible does describe we're all gifted. And it's not like a natural, it's a, it's a supernatural gift, okay? It's manifestation of the Spirit. But, but the point here is not let's, let's try to figure out the spiritual gift. The point is let's not be focused on one gift. There's unity and diversity. And they came together and they thought just because they spoke in tongues... That was all they needed. And so Paul says, that's not how a human body works. That's not how the church body works. In verse 14, Paul will talk about this a little further. Where he says, even so, the body is not made up of one part, but of many. The church is diverse in its membership. The church is diverse in its gift set. The church is not one member doing one thing. There's no human body like that. There's no church body like that. It's many, and it forms one. 
And the whole reason for this is verse 4, 5, and 6, where he explains that God himself is diverse. Look at how verse 4, 5, and 6 are worded. There are different kinds of gifts, but the same Spirit distributes them. So, the Spirit distributes gifts. Verse 5, there are different kinds of service, but the same Lord. So there's gifts, there's different kinds of service. Verse 6, there's different kinds of working. Well, that's the word energy. There's different, peop- there's different energy that people put to different tasks in the church. But in all of them, and in everyone, it's the same God. So there's gifts, there's service, there's working, there's Jesus, the Lord, the God. It's very diverse, okay? And Paul said, look, look at God himself. He's diverse in the way he works. The church will be the same. And in verse 8, he gives... Uh, list of gifts, verse 8, 9, and 10. And thus, that's not like exhaustive list. If you look in there and say, oh, I'm out of luck. I don't have any of these. That's not an exhaustive list, okay? Um, we know that because he gives some more at the end of chapter 12. Chapter 7, he says, I'm, I'm celibate. That's a gift. And if you're married, that's a gift. So this is, if, if you don't find yourself in here, you're gifted somehow, some way, maybe not in this list here. But the, the point is, he's using this illustration of, of a human body, and, and everybody's saying, well, I, I don't need you, and I don't need you, and um, if, if, we all exercise our com- if we all exercise our gifts, it'll build up the church. That's, that's his point. I want to show you this photo here, because this, this really helps illustrate the diversity of the body. You may think, what am I looking at right now? Well, here's what you're looking at. On the left side is a gate in my backyard that is now cut open and opens to the reserve that's beside our yard. And just to show you that it's real, on the right side, I've showed a picture of it closed. It functions properly. It opens and it closes. And you can bolt it. All right? And you may think, Dave, you're a wizard when it comes to working with carpentry. (laughs) That's not true. What happened... The truth is I invited Beatrice and Alberto over to my house last week. And I said, I want to cut a gate in my fence. I had this dream for it. And I had a, little, I had a couple bolts and a couple pieces of wood. And I had like one tool. <laughs> and so the truth of the matter is when, when we worked on this gate, I, can, I can't even really say we. <laughs> I can say Beatrice and Alberto walked, worked on the gate while I kind of watched them. And kind of said, what else do you need? (laughs) And so, man, when they came in, I realized these guys are about the business. Like, Petrus rolled up. He had this, like, helmet. You know, it was like a helmet he put on when he cut the wood. It was like this mask. And he brought out these tools and a collapsible saw. And I was like, man, these guys are serious. This is what I'm talking We're going to make this gate. We're going to make this thing happen. And. And you know, and then Pinterest is cutting the wood, and Alberto is like measuring stuff, and like, and they're talking back and forth, sometimes in English, sometimes in Afrikaans. They're probably saying, when is Dave going to do something? <laughs> and they're like, you know, like all these, is, I was like impressed with it, you know. They're like, you know, let's make sure this and that. And, and I was just like, yes, this is awesome. This is, this is how work is supposed to happen. Not really, but, um, and then I realized, you know what, I have no idea what I'm doing. <laughs> If I would have tried to make that gate on my own, I think Auckland Council would have fined me. (laughs) I think they would have really like been, what in the world has happened over here? There's no way. My tools, Luke could use my tools. And, 
and when they came, I was, and as I sat around, I was thinking, you know, it, it, it occurred to me like, man, they, we need each other because everybody has their different gifts and skill sets. And, and so we can all stand around and watch them do the work. <laughs> that's not what it means. But I, I really, really think that's what church is like. But if you're not connected relationally, you'll never see that. You'll never see other people's gifts. You'll never see your need for other people. You'll never see that you can't do this on your own. You'll never see the manifestation of the Holy Spirit. And there's many examples. I mean, when you start to hang out with people, I see, man, there's people that are really gifted in our church. And some people think, oh, it's all about about the preaching. It's all about the singing. No, it's all about everybody doing their part. That's what it's really about. And and unless we're in these relationships, we don't experience this diversity. That's what Paul is saying. Don't come to church and just be focused on speaking in tongues. Come to church and figure out how to give to the common good. And that only happens when we're connected relationally. And and what what prevents us? Verse 21, there's this idea of self-sufficiency. The eye cannot say to the hand, I don't need you. That would be preposterous. The, the, the eye definitely needs the hand in the human body. And, and similarly, the, the ear says something that I don't need you. Or, and, the, and the head cannot say to the feet, I don't need you. That's in verse 21. So we probably don't verbalize this when we come to church. Hey, how you going, bro? Hey, I'm well. I don't need you, though. <laughs> and if you do, you're just bold and arrogant. Okay. Well, you probably don't verbalize that, but perhaps you do in your actions when you neglect relationships. When you do that, you say, I don't really need you. I don't really need your gifts. I don't really need your skill. I don't really need your help. And if you think just coming to church is going to get your needs met, this is what, an hour and a half at best? And the fellowship afterward is awesome. But if you have a, try to have a proper conversation, there's kids running around, and you all know how it is when, when you're trying to fellowship with someone, and, 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 some, and then someone comes up and says, hey, sorry to interrupt, and, and then someone else, and you can't really have a, a conversation. And that, that's all good, but if you think, oh, I'm coming to church, and I talk to people after church, but there's no relationship outside of church, then you're basically saying, I don't really need you guys. I can do this on my own. And, and I think we've got to understand that, as, especially as our church grows and as people start coming in, as we start thinking about planning Wellington, we definitely need each other. We desperately need each other. And we all need to come to say, how can I give to the common good? How can I help build up the church and not just be focused on myself? But how can I demonstrate what the Spirit's gifted me with? How can I build up someone? How can I help build the body? Another way we neglect or we say, I don't need you, is we just don't ask for input in our lives. You know, that's another way of saying, I really don't need you. I've got it sorted out. I've got it figured out. When did you last deliberately seek input about your parenting or your, or, or your, or your marriage or how to become more effective? Or When is the last time? And sometimes you try to cloak advice seeking by just putting a situation out there and hoping somebody realizes you're asking for advice. If you want input, say, hey, I need some input. But if, if that's not happening regularly, that's, that's another way of expressing, I don't need you. Or strained relationships. If your relationships are strained in the church and you feel like, ah, I'm, not really, 
I, I, I'm deliberately trying to fracture or strain relationships. That's another way of saying I don't need you. But the beauty, that's the negative aspect, but the beauty of being united like this is that we rise and fall together. And praise God for that. It's like in a marriage, you know, when I'm doing well, we're doing well. When Megan's doing well, we're doing well. When she's not doing well, we're not doing well. When I'm not doing well, we're not doing well. It's not, oh, I'm doing well and, and Megan's not doing well. Or Megan's doing well and I'm not doing well. When one is well, we're well. And that's the same thing with the church body. This is such a big deal. That, that's what Paul talks about. When one part is honored, everybody's fired up. When one part suffers, we all suffer with it. And I, and I love our church in that way. Remember when Abhijit shared good news at midweek? He said, I got a job. They were like, yes, brother. We were so fired up because we had been praying and we all rejoiced with that. That's awesome. And then remember when Lee passed away. And we all rallied around and we, we suffered together. And then remember when Cress was dating and we're all fired up? And then, well, amen, bro. And we all celebrated. <laughs> but, you know, but if, if one group of the church is growing, that's a win for the church. If one person gets baptized, that's a win for the church. It doesn't matter what group or region it's in. It's a win for the church. If one region is doing well, that's a win for the church. If somebody's growing and, and being fruitful, that's a win for the church. It's not competitive. We're all in this together. We rise and fall together. If someone is winning, we're all winning. If someone is losing, we're all losing. We rise and fall together. There's nothing like that outside of the church body. It also means everyone matters. Because in, in this passage, Paul says that if the foot in verse 15 should say, well, I don't matter, I'm not a hand, it would not for that reason cease to be part of the body. That tells us that it's really irrelevant what you think about yourself. What matters is you're actually part of the body. And everybody matters. Uh, but I'm not really... That's irrelevant. You're part of the body. And you matter. Well, I can't do that. It doesn't matter what you think or your feelings of insecurity or inferiority. You are part of the body and everyone matters. And you got to figure out how can I give and how can I contribute? Because you are an indispensable part of the body. That's what this is all about. Everyone is important. Everyone matters. And we have to embrace this to build unity. To look down and criticize other people or say, I'm not like them, that's to destroy the unity that God designed for us to have. As we conclude, I pray that we genuinely become a church of spiritual people. It's not about having an experience. It's about being genuinely following Jesus. And making Jesus Lord. Being a spiritual person is emphasizing God more than man. Being a spiritual person is emphasizing truth over experience. Being a spiritual person is realizing we need each other. And there's unity in diversity. And let's all contribute for the common good. So Jesus can be exalted here in our church, here in Auckland, and here in our country. Amen. Amen.